Father, we pray this day that we would be filled with wonder at the mention of your name, sung and proclaimed upon the praises of your people, but also proclaimed from the pages of your holy word, even as it's dramatized in the ordination of baptism today. We pray that you would move us to behold the word of Christ in these means and more as we seek to grow in our understanding and the consistency of our confession and in the strength of our conviction and the boldness of our testimony to others to proclaim that Christ and Christ alone is the way of salvation. In him is truth, in him is life, in him is redemption for the forgiveness of sins by the cleansing power of his shed blood. Today, as we turn to the scriptures, I pray that you would open up our heart and write upon them with ink that cannot be erased by the trials of life or by the enemies of our soul, the message of hope in Jesus. Lord, I pray that those who are baptized today, that you would seal your word upon their heart, that this moment would stand as a milestone, as an altar, that they might remember their whole life long the power of the gospel that has saved them. By the Holy Spirit, they were baptized into Christ. And as they were baptized into Christ, so their sins were atoned for and their resurrection was assured. I pray, Lord, today that you would write upon all of our hearts the message of the gospel in such a way that for the redeemed, for the saved, it would return us to the joy of our salvation. And for any loss within the hearing of this message, that they would be drawn to confession of faith, repentance, and submitting to Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Lord of salvation, Lord of this world. It is his name we pray and his word we proclaim. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to enable all of this to the praise and growth of his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning is a great gift and privilege to turn to the scriptures together and to unite our understanding and our profession to the only infallible standard, which is the word of God. And today we turn in God's holy scriptures to Romans 6. So I'd invite you to turn there. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, the title of this message, which is an occasional sermon, is baptism significance, exploring the meaning of baptism from the, uh, more broadly from the perspective of Scripture. More specifically, the aim of this sermon today is to broaden our perspective of baptism, given the big picture of God's Holy Word, given the big picture of Scripture. Today we have uh, several references, and they'll be organized as follows. From Romans 6, we learn what baptism means for the individual believer, from 1 Corinthians 12, we learn what baptism means for us as members of the church of Jesus Christ. And from Acts chapter 1, we learn what baptism means in the scope of covenant history, God's plan of redemption unfolding in time. With that introduction, in your Bible and your heart open, would you stand out of reverence for God's word today? And behold God's holy scriptures. Today we read the infallible word of our God in Romans 6, 2 through 14. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Why should I be baptized? A new believer may sincerely ask this question. And the biblical answer to this can be as simple as Jesus has commanded that we be baptized in his name. Certainly that's reason enough, but it's not the only reason the scripture gives for why we should be baptized. The full range of significance, importance, blessing, and benefit of baptism extends this answer across the teachings of scripture drawing from multiple points of reference in the scope of God's plan for salvation, unfolding in history, and in the life of a believer. The answer to that question, why should I be baptized, is, I would expand to say, not just because God has commanded, but there is significance, importance, blessing, and benefit in the act of baptism and in the institution of this ordinance which God has given the church to remind our souls and proclaim to the world, to remember and to declare the power, the glory, and the work of His redemption in our lives. As we look across the Bible, we see an unfolding picture of the meaning of baptism from the beginning pages all the way through to the close. So this morning, we'll touch on a few references like this. And the goal of today will be to draw from several passages beginning with the meaning of baptism, as we've just read, personally, and then zooming out to encompass a more panoramic view. And by doing this, we'll consider Christian baptism and light of who we are as the church, not just personal, but also zooming out for us as a church, and even further still, in light baptism in light of God's redemptive history and the ark, that is, the overarching story, if you will, narrative, purpose of God and His history of redeeming a people across time. As we do so, we consider baptism in light of this perspective. We see, it is my prayer today, a growing picture of the powerful and amazing and certainly densely packed meaning that God has placed into something like the institution of baptism. In baptism, we remember And we are reacquainted in this unique way with the truth that God is redeeming for himself a people. If we had more time to explore 
in more messages and more passages of Scripture, we would be reminded from the fullness of apostolic teaching even more about the significance of baptism. And here's just a list. These are in your notes if you have a copy. Reminders of the meaning of baptism. Baptism is a sign and a seal of our membership in the new covenant. So young people, there will be nine of you by my count or so who will be baptized today, Lord willing. And I want you to remember that when you are baptized today, remember from this day forward, you are confirmed as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. You belong to his people. You belong to his church. And as such, this is the picture of membership in the new covenant that we see across all the pages of Scripture in its fulfillment in this age of God's work in the new covenant era after Jesus has come. The new covenant takes on its members as those who are baptized into the name, into Jesus Christ. Secondly, baptism pictures our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. What does that mean? Well, put more simply, in your baptism, you remember and proclaim the following. Jesus was killed and buried for you, and Jesus leads the way for your resurrection. Jesus was killed in your place. He was buried. He died for you, and he leads the way for your own resurrection or passageway, safe passage, journey unto eternal life. Thirdly, baptism signals safe passage through the waters of judgment. I love this picture. I'm often fond of mentioning it, but I think it bears repeating just the same. Just as the ark prepared in the days of Noah carried his family safely through the flood, so Jesus carries us safely through death. Every one of the children who will be immersed in the waters of baptism today will arise unscathed from those waters. They will not drown today. And this is a picture that when the waters of judgment come, uh, for those who are the rebellious and unbelieving, we are, we are preserved from God's judgment through Jesus Christ, the means of God's salvation prepared for those that love Him. And just as all who are in the ark of Noah were saved, so all who are in the ark of Jesus Christ will survive the judgment of the final day. Baptism, furthermore, represents a cleansing and washing away of our sin through the saving work of Jesus Christ. As those waters of baptism wash over our body, we are reminded, so it is with the work of Christ. His death and His blood washes away the stain of sin and gives us white new robes of righteousness, so to speak, rendering us presentable before a holy God. Baptism illustrates new birth. When God changes our heart in regeneration, which means to be born again, we are made new. The old has gone. The scriptures say the new has come. Baptism, as we mentioned before, is a command for new believers. And therefore, in baptism, we declare and demonstrate our obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We are baptized in part because our Master has told us to. We willingly and joyfully serve Him and obey Him and demonstrate our loyalty to Him in the act of baptism. In baptism, furthermore, we proclaim our faith. It is a message to others. It is a witness and a testimony to all that our faith, our hope, our security, our assurance, our future, our salvation is in Christ alone. Baptism, finally, is a lifelong reminder of the miracle of our salvation. And as I often say, and I trust your parents do as well, 
in preparing your children for this day, never forget this moment. Do not forget the day when it was pictured in your experience what Jesus has done for you. Remembering the moment, the water, the experience, the message of baptism is like those altars of old that we've been studying from Genesis. It's something designed for you to never forget that God has washed you, redeemed you, that you're brought through the waters of judgment. Everything we just said, that you are born again, that Jesus is your king, that you serve him now with all your heart. And come what may, your future is assured because he died for you and he rose for you. So now let us consider several references to help us understand baptism in the context of our lives and God's kingdom. Here's a heading for you, the meaning of baptism. Three main points today. The meaning of baptism, first, for individual believers. Secondly, the meaning of baptism as the church. And thirdly, the meaning of baptism in covenant history. Turning again to the passage which we just opened with, we read Paul's words in Romans 6, 2 through 14. And baptism, and according to Paul, we learn the following. Baptism signals death to sin, resurrection in Christ, and grace for holiness. First of all, death to sin. I want you to notice this language in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You will notice that Paul uses this language at least four times by my count in our passages today. When we are baptized, we are baptized into something. And there's two references here. Paul says that we are baptized into Christ. That is, we are included in his experience. We are counted among the saved and the redeemed that his experience becomes our own. There's this union, this unity, this shared reality that we have when we are baptized into Christ. It's hard to explain, it's hard to describe, but it's glorious to behold as the Spirit opens our eyes to this reality. Secondly, in similar language and more specifically, Paul says that we were baptized into his death. So in baptism, we were included in some sense in the death of Jesus. So what does this mean? Well, for believers, it means that to be baptized signals death to sin. And as we continue to read, Paul expounds, verse 4. We were buried, he says, therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is some of that glorious and deep and complex language that Paul uses. But as we boil it down, perhaps we could conclude the following. That for Paul, to be baptized into Christ means our old self was crucified with him. Our sinful self uh, deserves something. Kids, remind us. Here's a question for you. What is the wages of sin? The wages of sin is? That's right, death. Since the beginning, according to the original covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, a basic arrangement was made between God and man. If you do not eat or if you can eat of any tree in this garden, but the day that you break my law, break my rules, and you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the consequences will be death. For you and all who follow you, all who are born in you, so to speak. 
And in theology, we call this covenant headship. In Adam, all who are born in sin, all who are, who are the children, the legacy, the fruit, if you will, of this sinful act are born now in sin and transgression. And we have a real problem. The wages of sin follow us. We have a death sentence. We have the looming judgment of God over us. Every one of us proves our guilt, not just in the corruption that we were born with, but among the first actions that we take as we, according to the pattern of our first parents, Adam and Eve, transgress God's law. And so this leaves us with the reality, if, every, if anyone is honest, that the wages of sin are death, and since we have sinned, we deserve it. However, for Paul, to be baptized into Christ means our old self was crucified with him. Our sinful self, all we knew before God changed our heart, is rendered as good as dead. So that part of that us, if you will, the sinful you that deserved death is gone now. The wages of sin, death, have been applied and paid with respect to our former selves. This has happened in Christ. In other words, that death sentence has been served by another. Your sins and transgressions were taken upon Jesus, and when he died in your place, thus your sins were paid for. At what point does a sinner finally reckon with his sin? Well, ordinarily upon his death, this death reckoning is not looming over us anymore because it has been realized in Christ. The wages of sin is death. The wages must be paid. So therefore, we must die, or a perfect, sinless, substitute, Lamb of God, Savior, must die in our place. Through Jesus, our sin has been judged by a death reckoning. In Jesus, on the cross, our sin has been judged by a death reckoning. Therefore, in Christ, we are dead to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The second half of verse 4 reminds us of the second thing that baptism signals for us as individual believers, not only death to sin, but resurrection in Christ. Verses 8 through 11 continue along these lines. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Does death have dominion over you? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Does death have dominion over you? The author of the book of Hebrews says that everyone, outside of the redeemed, lives all their life in fear of death. And in our culture today, it's very common to betray, betray this fear of death by clouding it and masking it and denying it with all kinds of self-delusion and all kinds of self-indulgence, all kinds of false pretexts and all kinds of lies and everything else that we amuse ourselves and what is this? It's a colossal attempt to distract ourselves from the reality that everyone, when they're honest, knows deep down inside, we are under the dominion of death. There comes a day where everyone must answer ultimately, and he will give up the ghost, he will die, and then 
a reckoning for his life before a holy God will be required of him. So I ask you that question. Are you under the dominion of death? Some of you in the hearing of my voice can say no today. But those of you who can say no, I'm not under the dominion of, of, of death. The only reason you can say that is because you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have experienced, if baptism has signaled for you resurrection in Jesus, then you are delivered from the dominion, from the power, and from that guillotine of a knife judgment hanging over your head and the ticking time bomb, that clock of judgment day, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, that drives the unbeliever crazy and delusional. There's only one way to be delivered from that just execution death sentence, and it is, as we said, only if Jesus has died in your place. If in Christ our sin has been judged by a death reckoning on the cross, then through the empty grave our own resurrection is assured. His experience becomes ours, and baptism pictures this. If death has no claim on Christ, his suffering and his passion sufficient to absorb the wrath of God in the place of our sin, then death has no ultimate claim on those who are covenantally bound to him. This is what baptism means for you as an individual believer. You are dead to sin and alive to Christ. You in Jesus have experienced a death to sin and it no longer lays claim on your life, determines your future. That execution sentence has been served by another and now you look forward to the pathway into eternal life that has been forged, that has been pioneered by the one who stomped on Satan's head and that final act of cosmic victory when he defeated the last enemy on the third day when he rose from the dead. And this last enemy has been defeated and will be defeated. And his defeat and the glory of resurrection will be fully manifest on the second resurrection one day when all who are in Christ release the shackles of that temporary, even physical death of our bodies and join our spirits again one day. And there, before the throne of God forever, we will do what we do in just shadow and partial form right now. Praise him for his redeeming work that made that all possible. Finally, baptism into Christ signals not just death to sin, resurrection to Christ, but grace for holiness. There's a way we should live in light of these truths. And Paul goes on to emphasize this in verses, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This describes our calling, which takes shape over the course and the pathway of sanctification. As the instruments or the members of our body are presented to the Lord as instruments for righteousness, tools for obedience, if you will. Perhaps members of your body, you could use this phrase, human capacity, all your human capacities prior to knowing Jesus were corrupted by sin. They were instruments to serve your, uh, the enemy, the, the world, the devil, especially yourself. So your human capacities, like thinking, was captive and, laid, uh, and was under the influence of the world and your sinful in, intentions and everything along these lines. Your ability to experience the world through your senses was a way that your appetites could indulge your deepest and most heartfelt desires, which apart from Christ are all sinful, your human capacity. 
However, when God changes our heart, the human capacity now is increasingly dedicated as an instrument of righteousness. Instead of thinking and scheming of ways to sin, now we spend time meditating on God's word, what it means for us. Instead of celebrating ourselves and indulging our base desires and our corrupt instincts and our fallen nature, we seek to gather with God's people and look forward to days like this and mark our calendars by significant events like a baptism where children of families in this congregation profess faith in Christ alone. Thus, in increasing measure, baptism means grace for holiness. In baptism, signaling that ultimate change, we have that kind of first step or that mark of significant change or that difference commemorated in our memory that signals a profound change. I used to only want to serve myself, but now increasingly I offer myself, as Paul would go on to say, as a living sacrifice for the gospel and his kingdom and my human capacity, the members of my body as instruments of righteousness and not for sin. Remembering your baptism into Christ inspires you to live as a new creation, a transformed person presenting your members as instruments for his name's sake. So that's the meaning of baptism. In short, according to Paul, for us as individuals, what about as a church? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. Another letter by the apostle explaining to the early church the significance of their newfound faith in 1 Corinthians 12, he expounds the significance of baptism as it pertains to their membership in a community, into a new family. There's different pictures. The body of Christ is featured here. Or as stones, living stones, fitted against their cornerstone, Jesus Christ, he will say in another place. We pick up on one of these metaphors in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all, and notice this language, baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink one spirit. So again, that baptized into language, it's like an initiation. It's like a ceremonial rite. It's like a moment that signifies, it certifies, it's a certificate of authenticity that you belong. To be baptized into Christ means you have realized his salvation for your sins. To be baptized into the body means you have realized membership within the body of Christ. And so this language appears here once again as the church. So what does it mean to be baptized into the body? Well, first of all, it means that there is, we are in a community that is represented by a new head. And this is that covenant headship I briefly referenced before. This was pictured by Moses. Two chapters before, we have this idea of covenant headship and more baptized into language. And this helps us understand the association with the church, the community that baptism represents and signifies. Notice in 1 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. 
You see here in verse 2, that language appearing again, all were baptized into Moses. So this is covenant headship pictured in the Exodus experience. That is, all who followed Moses, all who obeyed Moses, all who saw him as God's appointed deliverer from the bondage of Egypt for their sake unto the promised land experienced a salvation event in the Red Sea. Everyone who came out that sea on the other side, unscathed by the waters of judgment, were baptized, so to speak, into Moses. They shared that experience of deliverance through the waters of judgment onto their direction or their passage to the promised land. This foreshadows covenant headship in the second Adam, Jesus. The Exodus, think of it, it was an immersive, so it was like an all-encompassing experience. You know, these walls of water on either side in this great sea as you pass through. Do you think you would soon forget this event? No. You would remember it your whole life long if the Spirit attended that experience. Let me be sure. The scriptures are quite clear that as a baptism of sorts, this event is to be a reference point, point for the people on into the future. They were never to forget it. That is, according to Exodus 12, even as the institution of the Lord's uh, Supper was given, the next generation, the next generation was given the memory and the testimony of being delivered through the waters of judgment under the, under the hand, the guiding hand of God's anointed Messiah, so to speak, a figure that would point forward a type of Christ. This is covenant headship. It was an immersive experience. It was a definitive experience. And it was a discriminating experience. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, kids, there were two groups of people who entered the Red Sea. Who were they? Two groups of people. There were the Israelites and, kids, can you tell us? The Egyptians, that's right, the armies. So the armies of Pharaoh were pursuing the Israelites. The armies of Pharaoh represented those who were outside of the covenant, the pagans, the seed of the serpent, as it were. Those who were in Moses following God's servant represented the covenant people. And as they were baptized into Moses, this immersive, definitive, and discriminating experience ended up separating the sheep from the goats, the seed of the serpent from the seed of the woman, as it were in that picture. When the waters of judgment collapsed on the enemies of God, every pagan Egyptian who was at war with the seed of the woman was killed. And everyone who followed Moses was saved. And this is a picture of being baptized into Jesus Christ. When you step into the waters of baptism, kids, imagine that experience of the young people of old following their, uh, following their leader, Moses, out of exile in Egypt. Imagine the water standing on either side of you as you're dunked under and brought forth. Imagine this experience and now see it as a separating discriminating and identifying experience. This means you no longer belong to the enemy. But those rebellious thoughts and that rebellious person you once were has been drowned in the water. And now there's a new you represented by this act now that, sir, that follows Christ unto the promised land of future glory. This is what it means to be in Christ. It's a covenant headship reality. So furthermore, the meaning of baptism as a church, covenant headship, as the group of, or as the community of the body of Christ is expounded, turning back to chapter 12. Paul describes it in terms of the body. One body, many parts. We have a corporate identity. 
There is something about us that cannot be defined apart from the church. We're no longer individuals who have the right or any significant meaning outside of who we are as the people of God. When we surrender to Christ, when we become a Christian, we give our right of self-identity over to the Lord, and we have a new identity in Him. What a powerful message that preaches against the norms of our culture today. As against the absurd and futile, desperate quest for identity and meaning these days, where our world seeks an answer to the question, Who am I? Baptism answers this question for us clearly, unequivocally, and gloriously. Baptism proclaims that uh, to our soul and to the world the following, quote, this is just my summary. I am a blood-redeemed child of God, grafted into the vine, fitted into the church, adopted into the family of God, with a unique calling to glorify Him, as a member of the body of Christ. That is the absolute, the certain, the glorious, the powerful, the transcendent, and enduring identity that you have as a baptized believer. You now belong, and this rite of initiation signals that you find your identity in Christ and in His church. Just as the body, verse 12, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Why does Paul choose two ethnicities and two life stations to uh, make his point of inclusion? Well, he means to convey that all other identities and all other groups of association are secondary to your new identity in Christ and as his church. What's more important, that you are Jewish or that you are a Christian? What's more important, that you are a Greek, whatever nation you may find yourself from, or that you belong to the body of Christ which transcends all ethnicities, all time, all nationalities, all life experiences? The world could stand to hear this message. What's more important, that you are of an oppressed class, slave, or that you are free, privileged? You hear these words, don't you? Buzzwords, oppressed or privileged. These words, according to the identity politics notions of our day, are absolutely definitive in the deluded mind of the unbeliever. But we as God's people say, no, our identity is not as a privileged class. Our identity is not as an oppressed class. Our identity is not bound up inextricably and ultimately and intrinsically in our ethnicity, wherever we came from, not even in our sinful past, but our identity is in Christ. And we find it a great privilege to be one small part in a glorious whole, clinging to the head from whom flows the life and the direction for the functional body of Christ through the ages. I may just be a foot, but oh, to be a servant in the house of God. Rather dwell in the house of the God than be a prince anywhere else. Oh, a day in the house of the Lord. It's worth a thousand elsewhere. And we join the course of the saints through history, recognizing the great blessing and privilege, undeserved grace to be counted among the covenant community of Jesus Christ. This is our identity. And we have this, and it is signaled in baptism. And in this identity is great unity as against the radical autonomy and the intrinsic, you know, and, and the inextricable strife that our nation is embroiled in, as against the rebellious individualism of our day, the misguided, as I mentioned, identity politics, and all the strife and squabbling, seeking to answer the question, who are my people? We, as the church, 
are celebrating today as we will forever the shared experience of personal salvation and grateful worship and joyful obedience to our Savior King. In baptism, we have pictured our identity and the unity of the church through the covenant headship of Jesus Christ. So what is the meaning of baptism? Well, for us as individuals, it means death to sin. It means resurrection in Christ and initiates grace for holiness. And as the church, what is baptism? It means covenant headship. Christ is our Lord and through him we have new identity and we have glorious unity. And finally this morning, what does baptism mean in the context of covenant history? For this, I'll turn you to a final passage, at least primary one, in the book of Acts chapter 1. I submit to you in this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, three historical, redemptive historical eras or eras in salvation history are presumed. And this is kind of interesting. In Acts chapter 1, 4 through 11, this is what we, re- what we read. Eavesdropping on a conversation between Jesus and his followers right before he ascended. And while staying with them, verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you notice the distinction there? Two different kinds of baptism. One was a baptism of water associated with John, of course, John the Baptist. The second is a baptism accompanied by the Holy Spirit. A change was about to happen in church or covenant or salvation history. Of course, this happened on the day of Pentecost when the promise of the third person of the Trinity attending the way of the church until the kingdom would be consummate was fulfilled. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Pause. Kids, who do you think those men were in white robes? I agree. Angels. Messengers in white robes sent from God to encourage and exhort the people, his his, uh, disciples looking on as he has just ascended. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes, verse 11, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what's the meaning of baptism in light or in the context of covenant history? Well, the history of salvation, according to this dialogue, could be separated into three categories I submit. That would be the anticipation of the Messiah, the Great Commission harvest, and the kingdom consummation. That is the full manifest glory and rule of Jesus Christ. After every enemy is defeated, after every elect soul is saved and his rule is established in perfect new heavens and new earth situation forevermore. Prior to, or the baptism of John looked forward to the coming of Christ. And every legitimate baptism prior 
to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the visitation of Pentecost, was, uh, took on this character. It, was, it took seriously the call to repentance in preparation to meet the Messiah. And now Jesus has signaled and he has sealed his completed work with his ascension. And thus is ushered in a new era of church history. From now on, imbued or filled or enabled with the power of the Holy Spirit, you will baptize, he says to his disciples as well. Your baptism will be different from that of John. It will not be in anticipation of the Messiah to come, but it will be in proclamation of the Messiah who has come. And so you will go not just to your countrymen and your people, but you will go beyond, yea, beyond Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see by application today that the gospel has visited our nation, our state, our town. Here, Cross Lake, Minnesota, the ends of the earth have been reached by the gospel and in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ, according to his program to baptize believers in this era of, in this era of great commission harvest, nine or so will be baptized in his name today. Isn't that a glorious reality? This great commission harvest will go over the scripture at the lake comes from, or more particularly, is given by command in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. That famous charge where Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, in my name, teaching them all things I've commanded, and baptizing them, and so forth. But there is a future that our baptism points towards, and there is yet a kingdom consummation on the horizon. As the disciples stand looking into glory, Perhaps they were longing for the full consummation of Christ's kingdom. And I'm sure that motivated their question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this the ultimate end as you ascend? Jesus answers, no. That time is a mystery to you, but I have work for you to do in the meantime. Is God slow? Has God been tarrying? Have we grown impatient for the consummation of his kingdom? I'll remind you of the message of 2 Peter, that God is not slow as some count slowness. But his waiting, his tarrying, and his long-suffering with this wicked world has served to add souls to his kingdom. Young people who will be baptized today, are you grateful that Jesus has waited to come back until you have come into the kingdom? Are you thankful for that? Amen. There are many souls, we don't know how many, that God has placed his mark upon. And as this Great Commission Harvest era unfolds, they are coming in one by one by one, by the sovereign grace and power of the Holy Spirit-inspired and empowered church to profess faith in Jesus Christ, to turn from their sin and to signal that conviction by their baptism. This is the era in which we live. We can stand up, or we can stand as the disciples did of old, longing for a future that God has ordained yet to come. Or we can take the admonition of Jesus Christ and as long as there remains today to be encouraged that God's faithfulness and grace has given us opportunity to proclaim the truth yet one more time and to seek, the, and to, seek to reach the lost yet once more with the gospel. So that is the era in which we live. But make no mistake, history is moving forward towards an ultimate consummation. We will join these men in white robes one day and our baptism signals this communion and this direction. As we mentioned before, just like in the days of old, being baptized into Moses in the Red Sea meant citizenship in the promised land one day for those who truly believed, so it is with us. 
This was our worship text, but let me read it again. Revelation 7, 9. After this, this is John looking into the future. This is what he sees. I looked and behold a great multitude, and no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forevermore, forever and ever. Amen. You can continue to read that passage on your own time. We get more explanation for those whose robes are clothed in white or washed white. They're washed white by the blood of the Lamb. Baptism pictures that glorious washing of redemption. And when we wear those white robes and we are in Christ, when we have repented of our sin and turned to Him, it gives us citizenship in that kingdom to come, in that consummate glory, in that future plan, and that promised land, in that new heavens and new earth, in that glorious manifestation of God's authority, of Jesus Christ's rule and reign, where it is obvious to all that every soul that he has ordained be ransomed into the storehouses of glory and every last enemy be placed under his footstool to the glory and praise of God the Father through his triumphant Son who defeated our sin on Calvary and signaled our resurrection by being raised from the dead on the third day and now calls us to be busy about the work of his kingdom, to baptize those who repent and believe in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us transition in prayer. Father, we thank you for these glorious truths that your word proclaims to us today. We pray that as we not only have heard them spoken in your scriptures, we would see them dramatized as it were in baptism this day, and that it would stick with us as a sign and a seal our whole life long, especially for those being baptized. We pray furthermore that the message of this commitment of faith in Christ pictured in baptism would proclaim the truth to others, and that even these young people would raise up would be risen up by your sovereign hand to lead their family one day in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So that as many generations as you tarry, the fruit of this baptism service would continue. That the children and the children's children and as many as you call would be gathered in by the power of the message of Jesus Christ through your church and through godly families and through the profession of the saints. And all of this, we thank you that the Holy Spirit has enabled this, um, this means today, and we pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified in all of the elements of this service. It's in his name we pray. Amen.